Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4, verse 38. Uh, you will certainly see why in, in just a minute, but uh, so I was preparing for this with this text. Uh, a very certain person came to mind, uh, a, a chef by the name of Burak Ojdemir. And I'm sure I've gotten that wrong, uh, but he is sometimes called, uh, you may know him by a different term, the smiling Turkish chef. Uh, he is all over YouTube and other social media platforms. And, you know, not many chefs are really worldwide famous. Uh, this guy is for one particular reason. Uh, all, all of his videos show him cooking a massive amount of food as in a pizza the size of the stage or a, a pot of stew uh, that you could swim in, really. Uh, he cooks these massive amounts of food. He does it all for poor and underprivileged communities and towns. Uh, and, and the other hook that he's got is he makes his entire video with this ginormous grin on his face, staring into the camera the whole time. It, it's a little bit creepy, uh, until you know he's doing it all for charity, and then you think, oh, wow, that's actually, that's actually great. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a fan of cooking, these are awesome meals. Uh, it's a top-tier cooking show if it were a show. If, if, if you're into charity, I mean, this is, these are the kind of videos that will warm your heart. Um, you also might just get sucked in because of that smile the whole time. You wonder, can he really smile this whole time? And can he smile and look at the camera while building some sort of oven out of bricks and mortar? Can he really do it? Um, fascinating. You, you can look him up. Um, I don't know much about his, his life or anything, but he's, he does that. Uh, he, he's dedicated a lot of time and money to make these elaborate dishes for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people. And it made me think, what would happen if you were making one of those dishes and he does, like I do sometimes, where I pour the milk in my cereal and then smell the jug and go, uh-oh, that milk is turned. Uh, something else that I've done as well, you take a couple pieces of bread to make some sandwich out of, the, out of the loaf. You make your sandwich, maybe you take a bite, and then you look at the package of bread and you see green mold. And uh, disgusted, throw it all away. I don't care if my bread has mold on it or not, I'm going to throw the whole sandwich away. Because uh, I cannot stand that. Um, what would happen, though, if you were making a, a meal on that scale and you put something bad into it and you'd have to throw it all away? I mean, what a waste, right? And how sad, especially when you're doing it for, for a poor village like that. You know, I, th I think it's bad enough when my, my breakfast is ruined, let alone maybe the greatest meal that an entire village has ever eaten. Uh, that is, is an example of our, our sin-sick world and the effect that this curse, that the curse of sin has on the world. When we read, read these verses in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, they're, they're two very short stories all about our sin-sick world and how God is sufficient to care for us in it. Uh, now, previously in chapter 4, 2 Kings, if you've been here for these other sermons, we, we've seen 
uh, a, a massive debt need to be paid. We have seen a, a, a barren woman uh, given a son and lose that son and have him brought back to life and experience just the ups and downs of God's providence. But now today at the end of the chapter, we, we feel the effects of a creation that's been affected and cursed by the fall. And I'll explain more about what that, that really means as we, as we really get into the text. But uh, this text also reminds me a bit of, of that, that well-known verse in Psalm 30, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Because this is a text for those who are tired of weeping in the night. It's a text for people who just long for the morning to finally come. It's for people who are tired of of spoiled milk and dietary restrictions and allergies. They're tired of pain. They're tired of hurricanes. They're tired tired of cancer. They're tired of all these different things that make this world so hard. And what we read in 2 Kings 4 is that Christ is sufficient to overcome all of those curses, all of the way that this world is fallen, and he is sufficient to lead you through it. Uh, So let me pray for us uh, first, and then let's read this text. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we we come to you now, and we've, uh, we've... heard and we've sung how we are to to trust you. We've heard and we've sung how you provide us with our daily bread every day. Uh, We ask now that as we come to the bread of life, which is your word, that you would feed us and nourish, nourish us. Lord, we pray that you would shape us in every way, shape us and mold us and conform us to your word, shape us in our thoughts Shape us in our words and and shape us in our actions. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 38 to 44. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servants, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Amen. 
Uh, well, in just a, a very short passage and in a very few amount of verses, uh, we see a lot of different problems compounded on top of a lot of different problems. So at the very beginning, first, there is a, there's a famine in the land, right? You, you may have almost skipped over that in verse 38, but there is a famine. And that's a, that's a bad thing in and of itself, but especially for something like Israel in ancient times, right? This is, this is an agrarian society, not industrialized. They can't walk over to Walmart and just pick up supplies. Uh, you don't have a million different providers of, of bread and fruit and vegetables like we do. No, if there was a famine, people would, would go hungry. You would have to spend your entire day searching and scavenging for food, um, and more than that, really, the entire economy would start to collapse. And so Elisha has, has the idea to, to put on, he specifically says, put on the large pot so we can boil, stew together. And everybody goes out and chips in. They, they go to find something to put into this pot. Um, and they, they finally fill it up. They boil it and everybody starts eating. Uh, and it's poisoned in some way. Right? Problem on top of problem. Now everybody is sick. Um, at the very least, sick. Uh, it's, it's, again, it's, it's hard to tell what exactly is wrong with this stew. A lot of commentators like to think they can pinpoint the actual gourd or the actual fruit or vegetable or whatever it is. Um, you can't really say that. Uh, it, it's, it may or may not be actually lethal for these people. Uh, it could just cause some terrible, terrible sickness. It might be lethal. Regardless, though, the entire, uh, you know, seminary of prophets is sick. And then on top of that, you've wasted an entire pot of food, right? You've eventually found enough good food to eat a meal, and it's gone, right? It's a lot like like Chef Burak. He can't, when he is creating his meal for the underprivileged village, he can't just go around the corner to Walmart and buy 10 more lambs and 1,000 pounds of flour. If his food were spoiled, it would be gone. Is this, is this your average everyday struggle for daily bread? Um, I think so, but I also think there's a lot bigger point going on here in this, this random kind of story about soup. This could very well be a, a, a sign, especially with the famine of God's wrath. So in Leviticus 26, just for one example, as God is reiterating the covenant to his people and, and telling them to obey, he says, If you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your pow power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruits. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. Now those are, those are some very specific curses that he promises when the people disobey. Now we can't I don't, know, I don't know if we can draw a straight line from Israel's sins to this specific famine, but throughout the book of Kings, what are the people doing? They're always unfaithful to the Lord. 
They're always uh, unfaithful to his covenant, right? We have kings, kings and queens like Ahab and Jezebel just ruining the nation. We have Baal worship institutionalized. We, we read last week about the, the false god Molech, right? Where Israelites would, would actually sacrifice their children to this false god. Covenant infidelity is a, a major theme of Elisha's ministry, a major theme of the book of Kings. And so, yeah, there, there is something of God's wrath being poured out on the land here. And I think it also takes us back even further to Genesis chapter 3. Right? Probably a passage you know a little bit better, but after Adam and Eve sin and eat of the fruit that they're not supposed to, one of the curses that, that God says to the man is, Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles are going to grow up. It's by the sweat of your face that, you will, uh, that you'll toil and you'll eat until you return to the dust of the ground yourself. Right? A- Adam and Eve's sin didn't just bring rebellion into the world, but it kind of broke nature. It made nature itself so much more difficult. The world becomes futile, becomes unsatisfying. Uh, it, it passes away very easily. It's, it'd be a lot like if you just kind of drained the creation of all its color and now it's all in black and white. That's kind of what's happened to nature since the fall. Ecclesiastes over and over again reiterates, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Life is so futile. Romans 8 even, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible says even, creation was subjected to futility. It was in bondage to corruption. It groans together with the pains of childbirth. And so as, uh, let me put it like this, these are the faithful sons of the prophets who are eating these poisoned gourds, right? As faithful, as utterly faithful as we can be as God's people, we still get caught in that crossfire, right? We don't, we're not exempt from the curse of this world. So Christian farmers, they don't, they're not exempt from the droughts that happen, the lack of rain. You know, Christian mothers don't get to escape painful childbirth experiences. Florida residents who are Christians don't escape the hurricane. Christian nurses don't get to escape COVID. There's a sense in which we're just so at the whim of broken nature sometimes. And to expand it a little bit, even you'll notice with this this faithful servant who goes out to get something for the stew, you can be the most well-intentioned and well-meaning of persons in the world and you can still cause a lot of damage, right? A, a preacher can stand up and preach the word of God and say something that, that offends everybody and, and harms people. Uh, we, can have, we can be so zealous for the Lord, uh, especially as, as becoming a new believer, and we can go out to our neighbors and our coworkers, and our zeal can sometimes repel them rather than draw them in. You know, we may have a, a hurting friend that we want to give counsel to, but that counsel is just not what they need to hear and it harms them. 
We can put all of our efforts into the best parenting and still fail. We can have all the best intentions in the world and things just don't work out. It's not just our sin that we can't escape, but we can't escape the brokenness of the world. Again, the good news is that that, even that does not derail the kingdom of God. So Elisha, in a sense here, acts as kind of a a master chef over this, this pot of stew, right? Actually, one commentator had talked about how in this story, he's a master chef. In the previous one, he's a master physician. In the, in the other one, he's a master and a better uh, lender of money for the woman. Uh, he decides to throw some flour in the pot, and all of a sudden, the soup is no longer deadly. How did Elisha know that the flour was going to fix it? He didn't, because it wasn't about the flour. Right? Even the text is very clear. Nobody knew what these gourds were. It's not like the flour was, was the antidote to the poison or anything like that. Sometimes God just likes to work with props. <laughs> he likes to work with things that are tangible and we can see and that we can smell so that they'll be more memorable, right? It has a, a greater effect on us. So our youth group went to the, the apple orchard a couple weeks ago. And I, I paid for some stuff over the phone, and I, I needed to go there to pick up a receipts. In my head, I knew I was going to walk in the store, and there would be apples and donuts and candy. And I was just going to walk in and pick up my receipt and be on my way. <laughs> I walk into the door, and as soon as I smell the donuts, uh... Let's just say all of my previous inclinations went out the window and I went and bought a dozen donuts. It's just so much different when you, when you smell it, when you see it, when you can touch it, right? It, it, it comes more alive. It's more real. Why do we put water on a, on, a, on a baby's head when we baptize them or a believer? Why do we eat bread for the Lord's Supper? It, it's, it's not exactly just about eating bread. It's not about cleaning off a baby's hair. Right? It, it's something that we can latch onto, something that we can taste and that we can smell and that we can feel. That's what Elisha's trying to do here with this flower. He's trying to give you a hook to remember this with. Uh, more importantly, though, bigger picture. Elisha is foreshadowing so much, something so much greater. Uh, at the very end of, of this, that first paragraph, there was no more harm in the pot. He removes all of the evil. He removes all of the death from that soup. Notice, interestingly, he doesn't heal the people. I find that fascinating. He does not go to the people and heal them. He heals the meal. Right? That's strange. Why would he do that? Because he's foreshadowing us the, re- the reversal of the curse of the ground and of the world. So Isaiah chapter 65, you've, I'm sure you've, you've heard this before, primarily from Revelation, but also back in the Old Testament in Isaiah where he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. 
No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Right, that's a lot of things that focus on the creation, not just the people. Uh, Even Jesus throughout the Gospels, he spends so much time healing people of their sicknesses, raising people from the dead, casting out demons and evil spirits. And do you ever wonder, why does he do that? Because all of those people end up dying again, right? Presumably, they all get sick again. They all have accidents and get injured again, right? He doesn't permanently heal them from this point forward. But when he does that, he says, listen, you all have been waiting for so long for these curses of Genesis 3 to be reversed. You've waited for that offspring of the woman to come and to fix not just sin, but the world. How long have you been waiting for it? And I'm telling you, I'm here. I'm the one who's going to take that all away. At some point, not now, but at some point, there aren't going to be any more 10-year-olds dying of heat stroke. There's not going to be any more blindness or loss of hearing. There won't be any more perpetual bleeding diseases that go on for dozens and dozens of years. No more being crippled from birth. Someone was meant to come and take all of those things, and Jesus is the one who delivers on that promise. Uh, Yesterday at the Jesus Walk setup was kind of a bizarre mixture of holidays and seasons because it's fall and it's Halloween, but it's also Christmas. Uh, I'll take that another step forward this morning uh, because my favorite Christmas hymn is Joy to the World. And there's one verse that sometimes gets cut out that we don't sing all the time. When we've sung it here, we have have sung it, but the verse is, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. His redemption and his salvation is spreading over all the world. It's bringing the color back It's all the black and white that we see and feel now. And it's not here yet in full, but but we get the handful of flour right now. We we get the foretastes. We get a little bit of the experience. And it's supposed to make us long for that one last final day. Now, the second paragraph, verses 42 to 44, it's, it's, it's different. Again, another, another meal, more food. Um, in a very different way, it also shows us sort of the situation of, of what it's like to be a part of God's people. Now, again, a, a, man, a man comes to the, the prophets to drop off uh, a bag of, of bread and grain for them to eat. And, and on the face of it, uh, again, the problem is that, that it's not enough, right? They, they can't eat it. They can't eat it and be satisfied. Um, th- now, this, this may or may not be going on at the same time as, as the famine 
and the stew previously. Uh, it may not be. Um, so this lack of bread may or may not be a result of the famine, but, but really on the face of it, the fact that there's not enough bread uh, is not the biggest problem. Here's the biggest problem in verse 43. His servant says, how can I set this before a hundred men? Elisha's servant is a skeptic, right? He doubts. Elisha says, go give this food to all the prophets so they can eat. And he says, I can't do that. Now, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's more despairing and, uh, and, and, and grieving it. I don't know if he's being critical of Elisha. Regardless, though, he hesitates. He does not act right away. He does not follow through with Elisha's command at first. And this time, there's no visible sign. Elisha just repeats himself. He just says, give it to them so that, that they may eat. And he tacks on, because thus says the Lord, they will eat and they will have some left over. There's actually, there's a lot of miraculous bread in the Bible. I don't know if you've realized that. There's the manna that rains down from heaven in the wilderness. There's, of course, Jesus does this miracle as well. Uh, just a lot of different stories where bread gets multiplied. And every single time, the point is not the bread. The point of this story is not that we will never go hungry again if we have Jesus. Right? That's actually what all the crowds thought when they saw Jesus perform this miracle. And so they followed him around from that point on, just thinking they were going to get more bread. The point is that when the Lord says, my bread is enough, it's going to be enough. The point is the Lord's speaking in his word. When the Lord said it was going to be enough, the prophets should have believed it. And when Jesus performs the same miracle, he also kind of points back to the manna in the wilderness. And he points back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses says, He let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, when the Lord makes a promise, we take him at his word, even if our eyes can't see it, even if our brains can't comprehend it, even if the cupboard is bare. If the Lord says, I am enough and this bread is enough, that's what we're to believe. Now, for Elisha's time, that meant another feast for the prophets. Uh, another good example of this is, is just the man who comes himself. Um, the bread of, bread of the first fruits that he brings is, is kind of this, this, this trigger word, this trigger phrase that, again, brings us back earlier in the Old Testament. The bread of the first fruits was an offering that you were supposed to dedicate to the Lord by giving it to the priests. This man's not going to the priests. He's going to Elisha. Because the priests right now are either, you know, Ahab and Jezebel's Baal priests or they're Jeroboam's 
golden calf worshiping priests. The priest is in rough shape. So what does this man do? He brings it to the true prophet of the Lord. He's faithful. He's a believer. Which again, kind of brings us back to even before Elisha was called as a prophet, with Elijah and Ahab's battle on Mount Carmel, and then Elijah's massive disappointment after that, when it actually looks like Ahab and Jezebel's regime have, have fought off Elijah after that Mount Carmel experience, and he's depressed, and he's wondering, how come there's no revival here? God tells him, you're going to anoint Elisha. The word is still going to come. You'll anoint a new king. Ahab will not reign forever. And there are 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And this man, even the town that he comes from, right? You see it. Baal Shalisha, he comes from Baal town. And he's a worshiper of the Lord. Come to give the first fruits to the Lord's true prophet. Right? Even when it looks like God's people are done for, the church is still there and the Lord continues to build it. Sometimes all it takes is that one person to lift us up. But the Lord had said he would build his church and he's doing it. Now again, when Jesus performs this miracle himself, we write it in Luke chapter 9, he's not pointing to the Lord. He's pointing to himself. And actually, it's fascinating how much greater Jesus' miracle is because, because he does it with less food. He does it for uh, a lot more people. And actually, Jesus does it twice. First, he feeds 5,000. And then a little while later, he feeds, he feeds 4,000. And the entire time, he's, he's pointing all of those people to say, I am your bread of life. It's not this, this loaf that you need. It's not the fish that you need. It's me. And the account in Luke is, is particularly interesting, right? Because we read at the beginning of that passage how the, the disciples had gone out on a mission. They'd gone out on a mission taking no staff, no bread, no bag, no money, one change of clothes. They were supposed to cast out demons. They were supposed to heal diseases and preach the gospel. And then they come back and he performs this miracle. And immediately after that in Luke, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And then Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What did it take for the disciples to carry out that mission? To actually go trekking across the land for however long they were out there with nothing. What was it going to take for them to cast out demons, to heal diseases, to preach effectively? What does it take for us to pick up our cross daily, die to our own desires and dreams, and live wholly for the cause of Christ? You need Jesus' sufficiency. He is the only weapon in your arsenal. He is the only bread in your pantry. You have to rely on him alone. 
Uh, now, now, in the first story, Elisha, is, it, it, it speaks to making sort of these accidental, dangerous mistakes. If that's what that one is for, this second one speaks to when our tanks are just empty. Right? I mean, how many of us feel like that after the past couple of years? Your tank is empty. The world is dark. The world is hostile. The futility of this life just rears its ugly head again and again. And we're called to trust that the Lord is sufficient. Not our own selves. Now the, the ultimate, ultimate point of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is to say, you, you need to feed on me if you want to be saved. You, you need to feed on me if you want to be given eternal life, if you want to live forever. But, but what has to flow out of that trust for eternal life is a continued trust for Christ to be sufficient for the rest of your life. And to paraphrase Paul a little bit, having begun by trusting Christ for your salvation, are you now going to live your life trusting in yourself to get you through? No, but how often do we do that? We say we trust in Christ alone for all things, but we, we, we pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We say, I'm going to get this done. No, it's, it's the Lord who has to do that. So Ralph Davis, helpfully commentator, puts it like this. Every new period of life, every new wrinkle in our family relations, every new condition that we enter in the workplace, every new type of trial that we've never faced before, how often we forget how competent Jesus was in the past to bring us through all those other things, and how often we just have to relearn this basic principle that Jesus is sufficient for this too. It's Christ alone. He is not overly spent. He is not handicapped. He's not overtaxed. He's not frustrated. He's not stymied. He's not perplexed. He's an endless supply of bread for your starving soul. Now you notice that if you've been here for all three of these sermons of 2 Kings 4, that the basic message kind of sounds the same every time. You're really meant to read all of this chapter in one go, right? It's, it's, it's not as if the kings have taken a break from all their jobs ruling and uh, sinning to let Elisha have his time. No, th- these stories are all stacked together very intentionally. They're meant to be just blow after blow after blow to help you remember who God is toward his children. With an insurmountable debt, he writes a blank check. With a barren and then a grieving mother, he overcomes death. With poisonous gourds, he removes the curse. With crumbs, he makes a feast. Right? They all show God's heart and compassion for his, his bruised and his broken children. They show also what he's capable of to do for us. But really, all of this excitement and, and all of these miracles are not, again, they're not meant to make us just, just hope for a better life now. They point us forward to the day when that final curse will be lifted. They point us forward to when we get to glory in, in Christ alone forever, without the hindrances of our sin, without the, the, the block, blockades and the obstacles that we keep tripping over 
in this life. Right? All of these, these stories in chapter 4 pile up. To steal an analogy I heard recently, they're meant to be a, the helium in our balloon that just buoys us and, and lifts us up when we're down. They shore us up for the rest of the journey to heaven. And when we do finally get there, it's going to be awesome. Right? Just every glimpse that you get of God providing for you and being sufficient now, magnify that a million times over. A tiny answer to prayer, right? An unexpected gift. Um, just, it'll be a million times greater when we get to experience it in its full force. And when we get there, we're not going to be worried about the food anymore. We're not going to be worried about tears. We're not going to be worried about death. It'll just be the, the glory of the all-sufficient Savior for us. We long for that. We look for that. That's where Elisha is, is trying to point us. He, he points us to Jesus, and he's pointing us to the life beyond this one. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your never-failing goodness and your help. Lord, we thank you that you are the, the refuge that we run into, the, the stronghold that, that can never be broken down, the bread that we need when we are starving. Lord, we, we do ask that, that your word would do what it is supposed to do, Lord, would you, would you lift us up? Would you, would you carry us? Would you buoy us for the journey in this life? Lord, we pray that these words would be a, a comfort for those who are grieving and mourning. We pray that it would fill us with zeal to, to overcome our sin. Lord, we pray that you would give us your, your daily bread, both, uh, both actually and, and spiritually. And you would continue to nourish us all this journey long. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.